today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Podcast. I'm Jamie Weston for Scott. Today on the show, the federal government announced protections for Canadian air passengers. What does that mean for the average guy like you or I? Should the city of Hamilton opt in to bricks and mortar cannabis shops? And why, oh why, has Africa by Toto made a resurgence in pop culture? The Scott Thompson Show Podcast, hosted by me, starts now. We've got a new passenger bill of rights sort of being announced uh, today in Ottawa by uh, Mark Garneau, the transport minister. Of course, who better to talk about things in the sky than an astronaut? That's uh, that's great. Could involve you getting compensation if your airline overbooks you. Uh, could involve um, airlines be having to seat your kids next to you and not charge you a premium fee for that, among other things. Um, here's Mark Garneau in Ottawa earlier this morning. Once the Canadian Transportation Agency's draft regulations are published in Canada Gazette Part 1 this Saturday, Canadians will have 60 days to provide comments. Our government's goal is simple. It is to provide air travellers with fair and balanced passenger rights, the ones that they deserve. Buying an air ticket can be a big expense for a Canadian family, and we expect the airline to honour their end of the deal. An airline ticket is a contract for service, and it imposes obligations on both the airline and the traveler. We all know someone who has had a negative flight experience, or we have seen stories in the news. Except in circumstances which are beyond their control, we are going to make sure that airlines treat their passengers with the respect they deserve and live up to their commitments. These regulations establish clear and consistent standards of treatment. We're proud to have made such progress in strengthening air passenger rights for all Canadians. Transport Minister Mark Garneau uh, making uh, an announcement to the media in Ottawa this morning about the Passenger uh, Bill of Rights, um, which really is long overdue. Carl Moore is an associate professor at McGill University. He's a guy that has uh, that keeps a, a close eye on the airline industry and, and consults with airlines as well. Is that right, Carl, historically? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so um, what are your thoughts right off the top about what uh, we heard the government say earlier today? Well, I think it's a good step forward, uh, long overdue in many ways. Uh, it's been something they've been looking at in, I guess, good Canadian government style for a while. And they looked at what they do in Europe, what they do in the States and Australia and so on to get a sense of what, you know, kind of what the standards are out there in the developing con- or developed countries like our own. And it came up with uh, some good ideas. So I think, you know, it's been perhaps too long a wait, but uh, I think it's been worth it. Uh, now, it will still be some months, as uh, Minister uh, Garneau was saying, is they're going to spend 60 days for Canadians to look at it, comment on it. They've already had a lot of comments and issues come to them already, get some more feedback, and then they'll adjust it perhaps. But then it'll take a month or two for the airlines, understandably, to see what the final product is and get organized for it. They are uh, no doubt going to hear from passengers, from consumers, that this doesn't go far enough because my my feeling is that we have so much pent-up anger about our, our airline services that the government is, is going to hear, probably get an earful about how they're not going far enough. But in your opinion, um, being an industry insider, uh, is this really a, a good start or is this going far enough at this point? Yeah, I think it's going far enough because it's something where 
the airlines have got to run a business in order to keep flying, and the airline industry uh, has some good years and, and some not-so-good years. And so there's limits to how much we can milk the cow. Right. And on the other hand, it's something where, you know, you you, you spend hours waiting in an uh, airplane, which I've done on the ground. They're not giving you food and water and things like that. There's a point where it, it goes too far. So I think they're trying to kind of find a happy mid-ground between uh, killing the goose of the of Air Canada, WestJet, and Porter, and so on, and on the other hand, being fair. And and what the airlines would do would do some of these same things previously, but it was optional. Right. right. So it's not as if they were not doing these things at all, but it was left up the discretion of the airline and of the you know the manager at the place. Where today these are not going to be optional, but they're legal rights. So that's going to change it a lot. But I think you can go too far in uh, you know pushing the airlines in times when uh, you know fuel prices are up and it's uh, not the easiest industry to make money and if they don't make money they won't stand around and we've seen dozen of airlines in canada collapse over the years i think people uh their big their biggest issues are overbooking delays that um i mean weather's one thing you can't do anything about that but delays caused by i don't know a mismanagement of schedules uh whatever um, overbooking, and then the thing that you mentioned earlier, which is this, and these don't happen very often, but they're awful. These these hostage takings, basically, of passengers sitting out on the tarmac for hours and hours and hours. And if you've ever traveled with somebody who has special needs or young children, and you're in a situation like that, there is nothing I don't think that could be more stressful, and yet. We hear about and we see because people send their cell phone videos out to the to the internet, people suffering in inhumane conditions. You mentioned it, uh, uh, temperatures that aren't uh, human, uh, no water, no food. Why does that happen? It, what, explain to me how that can even happen. Well, you know, sometimes it's because the they're greedy airlines, but I think a fair bit of and this has happened to me, uh, you know, a number of times in the many years of travel is that uh, I was on a flight from, uh, where is it, from Kansas to Philadelphia last week, and they didn't put us on the plane, but they made us wait in the lounge for a couple hours while they fixed the plane. And one is they could have said, look, at, we don't know how long it's going to take. Go stay in a hotel. You can fly tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And we were not wanting to do that. I mean, if it, would, if it became a few more hours, you know, you break down at a certain point. But we, we spent an hour and a half, two hours waiting, but they fixed the plane and we were able to depart, which is what we wanted. We wanted to get home. Right. Philadelphia to Montreal. Yeah. And it's something where I'd rather wait for a couple hours and the pilot and the repair people may not know and the repair person might go, well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm there, but I'm not sure until it's repaired. It's not repaired. So there's sometimes when you go, I don't mind seeing the tarmac because we can actually get to our destination rather than have to spend a night overnight with small kids. In I know, but I'm talking, eight, I'm talking eight, 10 hours, 12 oh, yeah. hours, well, that kind of thing. And, yeah. and people are in there and there's no airflow. I mean, air, 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 aircraft are, are just germ castles to begin with. They're, the air quality is yeah. terrible to start with. I don't understand why those situations can exist anywhere. I know there are security protocols and all of that stuff, but there have to be, there's got to be agreements, international agreements, where you can bring food out to an airplane that's stuck, that's going to be there for 10 hours, even if the people can't get off the plane, get some air in there, get some water, get some food. Why is that so difficult? Well, it's one money sometimes. <laughs> really? Cheap. Second time, they need well, to put that money in- to do that. And secondly, it's also that um, they may not, as you point out, for security reasons, some places be able to go and you know let people off. There may not be uh, gates available. 
those are all true, but they're probably more unusual. I would think they are. I don't, you know, again, you don't hear about these things happening often, but when they do, it's a problem. What about overbooking? Again, these I, I keep hearing more and more about this. I haven't uh, had the experience of being told I've been, quote, bumped. But how big a problem has that become? Well, it's something that's happened to me many times. So they get and say, if someone can catch your flight three hours from now, we'll give you $1,000 free of travel or whatever. Right. And and I've heard them up the amount because they just, you know, they really want to get some people to volunteer to get off and be relatively happy as opposed to that business person that can't make their flight and are going to miss a meeting in Vancouver who's not going to be happy. So I, I've ran into a number of times. It's a simple truth that not everyone shows up for a flight. Really? Yeah, I mean, it, it, you uh, one might be because they changed their mind or they might have missed a flight from somewhere else or, you know, been on a late flight. And sometimes you overbook because statistically you're going to have enough seats. Okay. All so right. you do you, you take that risk. So it's a bit of a gamble, yeah. What is a gamble, and sometimes it doesn't pay off. And then you have to spend a lot of money making up for that. But on average, overbooking has made financial sense for a lot of airlines because the people don't show up. Now, you can look at specific routes, uh, how many people are connecting, where they're connecting from, uh, how often is that flight late. So you can do some data analysis these days to get a, a, a sense of it. And my, my understanding is that because the data analytics is just exp- is more and more part of airlines, they're getting doing a better job of it. But when it comes to where it's going to cost you $1,000, $2,000 as an airline, you're going to rethink overbooking and be, take more care with it because there's going to be a real sharp edge to it. So the government is saying today that if the final version of this thing um, gets through, it'll be, you know, possibly you could claim up to $2,400 um, in compensation if you find yourself in a an overbooked situation. I mean, the devil, of course, in all of this is the details, and we don't really have the, uh, you know, terms and conditions of the ways that people would make claims uh, for whatever uh, concern they have. Um, but that's what the government is kind of laying out there. Th- this other thing about parents and kids on aircraft, Carl, uh, um, I had no idea that a- airlines wouldn't guarantee that a, a parent would be able to sit beside their child. That, again, is asinine. Um, it's just stupidity at its highest. I mean, that's, that's insane. And to have to charge people a premium, I mean, that, that, if we're really that badly off, if airlines are that badly off, then we're, we're in serious trouble here. One of the big trends in airlines has been unbundling. Well, you, you're probably old enough to remember when you actually, you, you just ask for a seat and they give it to you. I'm old enough to remember when people smoked on airplanes, well, okay, and that yeah, was that disgusting. Yeah, but uh, I like last week I was flying and I paid fourteen dollars to get a seat closer to the front. Yeah, from Philly to Montreal because I, you know, I, I, I get to get off and I'd be one of the first persons out and I'd be home sooner. I paid fourteen bucks to go. That's not a lot of money as opposed to sitting in the last seat in the row beside the toilet, <laughs> which is you know. So as a as a partly you know just sitting there the noise the smells all that thing and I, I can probably save myself my ten ten minutes so it was worth fourteen dollars but that's what increasingly do people like me are willing to pay on occasion at least for you know a little bit better seat in terms of and I'm six three and I I want okay and in case I got stuck in the middle but what happens is people are going in they're getting money but then the seat beside them they have to pay a fair bit of money for their kid but. I've seen it happen where a smallish child is sitting beside some stranger, not beside mom or dad. And it's not fun for the kid. It's not for mom, mom and dad. And it's not fun for the person, the adult, sitting beside some stranger's kid. 
and most people are nice about it would talk to them but what i've seen happen a fair bit is they say let's switch seats like you know mm-hmm. this is insane but it's nice that the government now and the airlines will just recognize that and deal with it as good human beings as they should and i've seen it happen where people kind of sort themselves out but it's nice when you go guaranteed my child's beside me as opposed to a couple rows away with some stranger yeah absolutely so what do you think uh, carl um, we've we just got a minute here to go but <clears throat> excuse me what do you think uh, the government will hear in the next 60 days because they they said we're we're going to go back out now that we've made our announcement and listen to people for the next 60 days any inkling as to what they might hear well they're, they're, they're going to quibble about you know other things you should add rights you have and that sort of thing. But I think by and large, when I look at it, it seems like uh, excellent progress. It's um, not dissimilar to what they're doing in the U.S. and the EU. And so I think it's something where there'll be a little bit of quibbling. But by and large, I think Canadians should be satisfied the government's made good progress on this file. All right. Carl Moore, uh, Associate Professor at McGill University, uh, an airline uh, expert, consultants, uh, to, uh, consultant to many airlines. Appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Now. Bye-bye. There's uh, Carl Moore. And uh, what do you think about this? You know, we'll weave you in if you want something to say. 905-645-3221, star 9900. If you want to drop me a line, it's jwest at westpromedia.com. Want to remind everybody, three cent a liter days coming up. That's right. Uh, Happening Wednesday, December the 19th. Uh, Fill up your tank and help ensure there's a a gift on Christmas morning for a child in need. Uh, That's all happening uh, Wednesday, December 19th at uh, participating Pioneer Gas locations. Three cents from every liter goes directly to the Children's Fund and the Christmas Tree of Hope, the 30th annual Three Cent a Liter Day is proudly supported by Pioneer. And there's a slew of of Pioneer locations. Uh, You can look them up online. But yeah. Save three cents a liter uh, on Wednesday. And gas prices being what they are, I mean, it's already a little bit of a Christmas gift, right? Gas is like a buck a liter or sometimes a little less than that. Shave another three cents off and help uh, the Children's Fund at the same time. Sounds like a good idea. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Downtown Councillor Jason Farr referring to the uh, whole cannabis sales thing in our city as the Wild West, and I think he's he's borrowing notes from Andrew Dreschel's column in the Hamilton Spectator that went a few days ago, where he talked to Sam Marula, the Ward Four Councillor, and it was Marula that really is is concerned about all these legal pot shops not being cracked down on, and he's you know Marula saying why not. You know, is everybody going to start selling wine out of their basements and hamburgers off their front porch? Uh, that kind of thing. It's a it's a wild west out there. The police, meanwhile, are saying, "Listen, we we are waiting for the courts to deal with the charges that are already in front of them, and they haven't. Uh, but that historically, um, historically, police executed more than seventy warrants and laid more than two hundred charges." against uh, illegal pot shops, most of which were either withdrawn or resulted in peace bonds being issued. Now, this is the part that's important, I think, for all of us to understand. It's the system that sucks. It's the, it's the, um, the details that weren't dealt with, that weren't planned for when the legislation went through. And the police, um, I think, are really caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, their duty is to uphold the law and enforce the law, but they have a lot of other things they have to do as well. And you got and they have to prioritize their time and resources. 
And the cold hard facts are illegal pot shops involve, like every other investigation, lots of legwork and paperwork uh, before they can execute those warrants. And so you got to ask yourself, what's a bigger priority right now? Are illegal pot shops the larger priority or is getting fentanyl and guns and coke off the streets? You know, I would argue that the latter is, is more important than the former at, at this point. But it, it's, it is, this pot thing is a mess. There's no doubt about it. My feeling on it is that the city's got to get with it and opt in for bricks and mortar cannabis shops. The illegal stuff will get dealt with in time. And I think that most people, if they can get the kind of cannabis they want to get in in a a legal shop, will go there and get it. And open as many as you want. The market's going to decide how many of them make it and don't make it. It's no different than selling any other legal product. You're either good at it or you're not. If you're not good at it, you'll close. So I'm not I'm not too concerned about that. I know there's people saying, oh, we got to set limits on the number of, of pot shops and that sort of thing. Michael Armstrong's an associate professor at the Goodman School of Business, Brock University. Michael, thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me on the show. So the central question for the city of Hamilton is, as other municipalities, should Hamilton opt in or opt out of bricks and mortar cannabis shops? Obviously, uh, the city council here is going to discuss that. What are your thoughts on all of this? I threw a lot of stuff out on the table today. Indeed. Well, there's lots of stuff out there. Dive in uh, anywhere you feel like it. Well, I think the first <laughs> thing that the council and uh, your listeners need to keep in mind is what n- is not being decided by council. So um, there are still people who would just assume uh, cannabis not be legal for production or legal for uh, possession. Well, that's it's Too late. no longer on the table. Mm-hmm. That's been dealt with by the federal government and its law. Yeah. There's still some people who would rather cannabis not be consumed in Hamilton, uh, uh, don't want to see it being smoked in places where smoking is allowed. Well, again, that issue is not on the table. That's been dealt with by the provincial law. Um, in fact, it's not even up to ca- council to decide whether cannabis will be sold or purchased uh, by Hamiltonians because it's already being sold online, so people can buy it that way. And as your uh, introduction uh, made mention, there's lots of illegal sources where people can buy cannabis uh, in the Hamilton area, just like most other parts of Canada. So the only thing Hamilton's council has to decide is, will they allow uh, legal shops to set up in their jurisdiction? Cannabis will be consumed, it will be smoked, it will be bought, it will be sold. The only question is, are we going to have legal shops or, again, as your introduction mentioned, uh, just the uh, Wild West? Right. And, and I can't see, a, I honestly cannot see a logical reason. I can see a political reason why mm-hmm. a counselor would oppose this, but I can't see a business case whatsoever for opposing, um, you know, approving legal uh, cannabis shops opening up. It's it's. How could you possibly make a case for that? Uh, I think I agree with you. Um, the problems with the Wild West uh, scenario, the problems with the legal shops, those will uh, be less. I can't say they'll be zero, but they'll certainly be less uh, as more legal places open up where you can go to buy. Uh, I mean, you don't see people selling burgers off their uh, front porch because there's lots of places you can go and buy a hamburger. That's yeah. right, that people know are regulated for health and that kind of thing, and are, there's some oversight, and that, that gives them more comfort. I can't see this being any different. Sure. So uh, the more accessible that the legal 
product becomes, uh, the less market share that will be left for uh, the illegal shops with organized crime or just your neighbor who grows his own stuff. Um, so absolutely, I think uh, that's the case. The only sort of argument I could see for, uh, for opting out, is, and this is really more from one of my political science colleagues to, to comment on, I know some uh, municipal politicians are concerned that they don't have any control over zoning or location of stores, uh, and I, I can see their point. They they have a, uh, other kinds of businesses. They have some uh, jurisdiction as to how many can set up in a given area where they can set up. Uh, the province is not giving them that jurisdiction. So I have heard some politicians say, well, okay, we'll opt out as kind of a bargaining tactic in the hopes the province will then later give us more power. Uh, is that a good bargaining tactic? Uh, it sounds kind of risky to me. Uh, but I'll leave that for the politicians to decide. So it's is is a lot of this, Michael, the fact that this is all all new and that for for so long, you know, people were you know opposed. You know, cannabis was illegal. It was associated with um, you know organized crime. It was associated with um, you know it was immoral. All of these all of these things, and that it's just. Because it's legal now, it's going to take people time and politicians to get their heads around this. I mean, as a political hot potato, it's still a hot potato. It's going to be for a while, right? Yeah, so that, uh, that's why I introduced my topic the way I did. I said, look, there are a lot of people who, would, who still think this is a, a horrible thing. And, you know, you know personally, I don't use it. I'd, it would be wonderful if nobody did use it. I mean, it's not good for us. Right. Neither is alcohol, people. right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, with the exception maybe of a few uh, medical uh, conditions that are still being studied. Right. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I can't control the rest of the world. Uh, and so, okay, let's, let's put some reasonable limits on things. Let's uh, provide a way that people can get a regulated, tested product yeah. uh, where they have some ideas that, yeah, there's no contamination in it. Uh, yes, it's actually cannabis and not something uh, more dangerous. Uh, yes, the concentration is more or less what's on the label, as opposed to having to take the chances of a uh, street product, which might be very good or might be something you don't know what it is. Right, and you don't know how many hands it's it's been through and what has gotten into it uh, in the various transactions uh, in, in which it's traded hands. And, th- you know, th- there you go. I mean, we're back to, you know, think of it as... Uh, as food, or, or I mean, even alcohol is regulated that way in in our country, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, we have to uh, we have to think of. No, I wouldn't go quite so far as to say like food, but think of it like alcohol. Think of it like tobacco. Well, I just mean uh, from a safety regulation standpoint. I yeah. mean, we we can argue about the ultimate safety of smoking pot, which is there is no safety. It's it's bad for your brain, and there's lots of studies about that. It's not good for you. I don't care what anybody says. That's that. I mean, people can say what they want. That's my take on it. Uh, based on evidence, but um, it is what it is. But it, it, but the regulation is the key. And so, if it's legal and it's regulated, I can't see why any municipality could possibly make a case for not allowing legalized um, pot shops to be open. It just doesn't make sense to me. I agree, uh, but as you know, in some cases there might be a, a political rationale. Um, Mississauga and Markham, yeah. for example, have opted out although uh, Toronto and Ottawa councils both widely opted in. Um, another point that uh, some of the councilmen might be a bit um, hesitant, say, uh, to consider is that 
there's not going to be suddenly 100, 100 cannabis stores legally opening up in, in Hamilton. Uh, as the provincial government pointed out, there's a shortage of supply right now. Uh, there's no way they could supply 100 stores. And in fact, uh, they uh, announced last week that they're going to limit, they only have 25 licenses uh, across the province uh, in the first round. Yeah. Now that, I don't think, is a very wise decision because it's going to mess up a lot of entrepreneurs. But, it sure will, yeah. Uh, nonetheless, somewhere between the combination of an initial shortage of supply and initial uh, rationing of licenses, it's going to be a relatively gradual first year. Uh, there will be time for people to get it adjusted to it to figure out, okay, how do we enforce our bylaws, all that good stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, I, I, and again, I, I, I think it's funny how uh, pot was legalized and the world didn't come to an end. Are you surprised by that? Um, well, not you know, yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Neither am I. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's as, as we both discussed, it's, it's something that's not really good for us, uh, but people do use it. People will use it. Uh, so let's figure out how to, they can use it in a right. relatively safe way that doesn't uh, cause hazards for other people who don't want to use it. Yeah. Um, as uh, one other commentator pointed out, uh, we don't have a crisis in Canada where hundreds of thousands of people are dying from cannabis overdoses. That's right. Uh, That's right. That's the point. That's actually the point, especially when it comes to the law enforcement end of things. You know, it, it, when people talk about, when politicians talk about the police, you know, aren't doing anything about these illegal pot shops, police have have to create priorities. They have the same struggles that every other organization has, resources, manpower, women power, whatever, and they have to create priorities. And I would argue that opioids and guns and coke and other stuff is a higher priority to weed. I, w I would just make that general statement and say, good, I'm glad they're making other things that are, are more dangerous a priority. Anyway, uh, Michael, thank you uh, for your time. Uh, great chat today. I appreciate it. Well, thanks again for having me. All right. All the best. Bye for now. Bye. Bye-bye. There's um, Michael Armstrong, Associate Professor in the Goodman School of uh, Business at uh, Brock University. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't understand. I do not understand. I remember being confused when I went to the Panic at the Disco concert this past summer at the uh, Scotiabank Arena with my daughter because they were playing Toto's Africa along with a countdown clock on the stage counting down to when Panic at the Disco, Brendan Urie would pop out of the stage. And I thought, what, what is it with this Africa? And the crowd's singing. Like, everybody's into it. I'm like, this is weird. What's this all about? I'm always a little behind when it comes to these things. But a guy who's always on top of these things and ahead of me is Eric Alper. He's a music publicist and music commentator and shameless idealist, and he's with me on the line now. Eric, welcome back. Oh, thank you for having me. Look, I'm not that far ahead, because if I was Jamie, I would have signed <laughs> Toto. <laughs> you know what? Toto was a band that was really made fun of in the day in, in a lot of ways. They they had they had a... They had a, some great music. I, I'm a fan of some of their music. Africa was yeah. not one of them, and 99 was not one of them. Uh, Hold the Line was a great record. Rosanna, some of the others. Yeah. And and these were this was a band made up of session players that just played. They were session musicians that came together and formed their own band and, and did this. But they were yeah. kind they weren't. I don't know. They And this song, I don't, in 82, I remember just sort of being, eh, okay, there it is. Why is it so popular now, do you think? 
Um, well, I, I, I think for a couple of reasons. Um, I, I think it's just one of these songs that end up from generation to generation in completely different contexts for the for that success and popularity beforehand. All it takes is for social media to latch on to something. And sometimes it's just one 15-year-old girl in the U.S. And that's exactly what happened earlier this year in May when a 15-year-old girl started spamming Weezer on social media, begging them to cover Toto's Africa. And this has went on for like weeks and weeks and weeks, every single day. And then, uh, you know, Weezer finally relented, but then they posted a video of them doing um, Rosanna uh, instead of, instead of uh, Toto's Africa. So then it got back to Toto, and somewhere along the line, Weezer started to work on the cover version of Africa. And then a couple of months later, Toto did a version of Weezer's Hashpipe. So sometimes it's just like one of those things that one tweet turns into a hundred retweets and shares, and then BuzzFeed gets a hold of it. And then the next thing you know, all these people are putting pressure on a band that probably has no idea who the other band is. That is amazing, the power of a 15-year-old girl in today's society on social media. That, that, that is quite remarkable. Using social media for good, not evil. Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's kind of like, well, why is, why is Nickelback so hated on social media? Why, why do certain songs um, like The Rainbow Connection by Kermit the Frog just seem to, you know, have life after life after life um, and get popular, or why does Mariah Carey all of a sudden explode on the chart now for her Christmas song when it's been out for a decade and it's been successful? But this week it hit the top ten for the first time in over ten years. It's interesting, so, yeah. It, you know, yeah. It just sometimes just things happen, and one plus one equals three. Those, and it's that. I think you nailed it. I mean, it's it's this generation of young people engaged with this technology that didn't exist a decade ago, uh, using it and discovering this stuff as though it's something new. I mean, journeys don't stop believing has has become a meme of sorts, really. It may have missed the meme thing just slightly, but it was that television show Glee that yeah. brought Journey back, that song of Journey's Back to Life, and yeah, and totally and, to yeah. and the Sopranos and totally ruined it for me because it's just it's just <laughs> I loved the song, but it's been overplayed now and it's been used in so many ways that I don't want to hear it anymore. Yeah, well, what's going to be really interesting though is like as as this generation of twelve to twenty year olds start to move away from cable network television and start to have Netflix and those kind of services in their lives from the time they're born. They're going to see commercials as very different than you and I. That means in terms of music, all of these songs from the 70s and 80s and 90s that are able to have new life once they're in brand new advertisements, those may, that area might be completely forgotten about now with this generation because they're not going to see advertising in the way that we do. Um, they're going to see 10-second ads on YouTube and that's it. And that's not enough time to broadcast a song that, like, you ain't seen nothing yet for Swifters, let's say. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's all a changing thing. But I think, you know, there are just some songs that 
you know, what's, what's really funny about this whole thing with Toto and Weezer specifically is we don't really know how many other opportunities there were for bands to do something like this. It just took Toto and Weezer to actually go ahead and do it. And I think that, you know, one of those things, um, you know, one of the, the possibilities of this song revamping and getting popular again is that you have two bands that are able to do that. If you go on Twitter, there's probably hundreds of artists pitching Taylor Swift and Justin Bieber and Shawn Mendes to cover their song. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I'm happy for Toto. I'm happy for Journey. I'm happy. I'm happy for Queen. You know, yeah, as well. Um, look, they're jumping all over the Rhapsody thing, going out with Adam Lambert. Yeah. Uh, and why yeah. not? You know, why not? Uh, there's a whole new generation of people that are suddenly interested in their music because of the Freddie biop, uh, biopic. Um, yeah. I, I'm not again. I'm, listen, I'm not. I just find it truly, truly fascinating as an old fart that this stuff, yeah. that this is happening. And, and I'm not unhappy about it because anything that gives me an opportunity to connect with my 13-year-old daughter on, <laughs> on music that I liked is a, good, yeah. is a good thing, man. Like, that is a yeah. good thing, you know? Um, it is, and, and it's just weird because <laughs> it's, it's a song. Like, it's, it's not like that when you and I, we were growing up or a large portion of this audience is listening now. It's not like that our kids are, are listening to Led Zeppelin and The Who and The Beatles and The Stones or ABBA and we're okay with that because that's like them getting into that age group where classic rock still matters to people. This is just happening to our music that we help create the star in the first place. Yeah. You and I helped create Africa yeah. to be a hit. We so bought the record. People, yeah, and you know, there are people out there that are friends of mine that don't like the fact that Weezer is suddenly popular again or becomes a Saturday Night Live skit as it was on Saturday. Because it's like, wait a second, that's mine. And it's like, no, 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 it's not yours anymore. You're 40. <laughs> yeah. You're done. You know? We're possessive of these things, aren't we? <laughs> I think I think that's I, yeah. I think that that's okay because you know you 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 need to find those moments where you know look one of the greatest things that ever happened with my daughter and I was you know her asking for the classic rock station, but knowing that the classic rock station was playing the eighties, and that made me feel old. But it's like yeah, that's just my dad and I you know, 40 years ago, too. I love it. Eric Alper, always a pleasure to chat with you, sir. Thanks uh, for taking some time with us today. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. All the best. Bye. There's uh, Eric Alper. You can check out uh, that Eric Alper, his website, everything happening uh, in the world of uh, music. Lots of great uh, stuff on his website. Check it out. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.